Hey, welcome to Night School. And this episode is going to be a little more formal. Winterformel. Winterformel. You want to go to the Winterformel with me? I guess not the winter formal. It's not quite uh, winter yet. It's still fall. But it can be winter if I want to say it's winter. It's winter whenever I say it. It's winter whenever I say it's winter. Uh, that's a new one. Uh, but, uh... I guess it is it is winter whenever I say it is, because uh, this episode's going to be about censorship, and I'd appreciate it if you don't censor me, even if I'm wrong. Even if I'm not wrong, but I'm not completely right, I'd prefer not to be censored. And as I said, this episode's going to be a little more formal, a lot more formal, potentially. And, uh, you know, I don't like to read any notes. I very rarely like to have notes, you know, for the every night to school night pseudo radio show that, that this originally was and seems to be more and more elusive these days. I do have notes about the songs I'm going to play and the music. But, you know, one of the purposes of this show is just to be off the cuff. And uh, I try not to get too formal, including even just little notes. I try not to look anything up if I can help it during the show. Uh, but I think formality is a good asset to have. It's it's something that's worth it's worth getting a little bit more formal. It's worth dressing up. It's worth. I like to wear a suit every once in a while, especially if I'm going to the winter formal in the fall. The winter formal in the fall. But the, yeah, the idea of censorship. Uh, and here's a question: If a speaker has no audience, does he make a sound? If a tree falls in the forest, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's a good question. You know, that old uh, cliche, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? And that's a good question, but there are really no good answers. So I find that it's best not to think too much about it. But it is worth thinking about the idea of the speaker. If the speaker has no audience, does he make a sound? And I'm going to leave that alone for a little while. Uh, and just talk about my take on censorship, and thankfully I can talk about it, something I don't take for granted. And censorship, as I've said before, is a fundamentally misanthropic behavior. You know, whether it's done on an institutional or communal level doesn't matter. You know, there's a continuum of influence between the two. They influence each other. Uh, one bleeds into the other. Uh, it doesn't matter what the political, ideological, or spiritual root is, and the alleged greater good is too subjective to take into consideration, in my opinion. Uh, uh, but censorship, it's fundamentally misanthropic, that is, hateful of humanity. And that doesn't mean you can't tell someone to go away or otherwise limit your exposure to people or ideas. God knows that's essential to me and anyone who wants anything resembling happiness or contentment in your life. You don't have to be friends with anyone you don't want to be, and you don't have to listen to everything they say. But boundaries aren't censorship. You know, censorship is a much harsher form of devaluation that comes from a, from a belief that certain people are too dumb to be exposed to certain ideas, which, of course, fluctuate depending on the time and place. It's not like there's one set definition throughout time of what ideas people can be exposed to or not exposed to. It really changes. And I think that's what makes the idea of censorship uh, inherently corruptible. Uh, and you see, it's funny because you see anyone who's 
in a quest for influence or power, inevitably uses censorship to some degree. And it's funny seeing this play out politically right now in the U.S., because the left and right both favor the common people, but only our common people. You know, again, to invoke that alien view, seeing things from that alien perspective, a UFO looking down on Earth, we basically have two groups talking about how our common people and blue-collar workers are marginalized and misunderstood, but your common people and blue-collar workers are stupid and need to be babysat and given limited rights of expression, and we need need to control their consumption of ideas uh, and police their language. And, you know, it's very easy to see that in the modern left as, you know, they're the most vocal and have had the most influence on uh, not just institutions like universities, colleges, but we also see it playing out in the media, you know, movies. It's, you know, it's very much, that's very much from the influence of the modern left. But we know that the right is very capable of doing the same thing. Uh, especially, you know, if you were of age in the Bush era, that was very common. It used to be the evangelicals were the guiltiest parties uh, trying to impose censorship, what music you can listen to. And it's come around, you know, it turns out that everybody does this in their quest for power and influence. But right now we see it a lot with the modern left, which is disturbing to me because growing up and Growing up in a secular environment with a lot of a lot of the, the people in my life, you know, the adults, the uh, you know, just people in my life, the older people, whether they were like older, my sister, mom, people, you know, a lot of my influences were more left leaning, and I didn't always just jump into that. I didn't just you know, I wouldn't consider myself having been you know some like hard leftist at any point in my life. Uh, But I just kind of, I was operating under the belief that, oh, you know, the left favors the arts, the left favors, you know, an openness of expression, and that was enhanced by the fact that, yeah, you know, the evangelical right was in full swing, in full bloom, and they were the ones telling you what you can consume and not consume, what you can hear and not hear. Uh, so it's been very strange to see things kind of this 180 sort of happen. And I don't even know that it's a 180. I think these things have always been components and sometimes they spike up and spike down and, you know, it's just, but it's, it's been strange to see. Uh, but yeah, as, as I was saying though, you know, both the left and right like to prop up the common person and be like, you know, the common person isn't heard. Nobody's listening to the blue-collar workers, uh, and they, they, they both prop these people up, but when those very same people disagree with them, those people are just dumb. They're just dumb. And it's unfortunate to see that, but you, you can see what's obviously happening. You can see uh, the game that's being played and the fact that these people are being used. Um. But there is this belief that, you know, the people who agree with us are misunderstood and need a stronger voice, but everyone else is stupid and will take on the most recent belief they are told, like college freshmen with a charismatic professor in their first humanities course. You know, they, oh, my professor is a socialist and recommended, uh, you know, Marx and, and Engel, and now that's what I believe. Going home to Thanksgiving first freshman year, you're going to tell your Uncle Dan all about, you know, Marx, and that's that's just what you believe, and then you move on to the next class. But 
it's it's a common phenomenon. It does happen. I mean, that's the thing. People will suddenly adopt whatever the latest thing they're exposed to is. You know, I find myself kind of trying to avoid to avoid doing that especially studying spiritual matters, it's very easy to like be like, oh, I'm reading about Hinduism. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm this now. Oh, that's what I should do. Because there's almost this pressure. When you hear an idea, there is almost this pressure to agree with it or to like contend with it. And I think it's a good exercise to be able to listen to ideas and be like, I don't, I can still, I can take things from this, but they're not necessarily telling me what to do and if I think they are, that's really just me trying to, you know, make sense of this. And just because you make sense of something doesn't mean you agree with it. Uh, but there is that sort of college freshman effect. It is a real phenomena where someone's exposed to an idea and they immediately adopt it, especially if it's presented to them in a, in a certain way by a charismatic person. It's a phenomena that we see play out. We've seen it play out forever. It still plays out everywhere for good and bad, and everything in between, certainly everything in between. But limiting people's voluntary exposure to ideas, and the ideas themselves, for that matter, not just the people speaking those ideas, but the actual ideas, it's a nightmare when we see it play out in an authoritarian or totalitarian environment like Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany. But in a generally free society... It means that someone might adopt a belief like the college freshman, but the odds are they will be exposed to another one just as quickly and easily. College freshmen will take another class next semester and they might do a 180 when they read John Locke or something. But, you know, the fact that they can be exposed to a succession of ideas and that allows them to, you know, they might drop one and pick up the other or they might hold on to components of each. And that's probably better. Because someone who adopts a variety of beliefs over time, especially conflicting ones, will be a more well-rounded person who understands the dynamics of different attitudes and belief systems, but they must have the opportunity to check them out if they're able to find some kind of synthesis, middle path, or most important of all, to have empathy and understanding as it relates to where those ideas come from and why people have them. If you put people in a box, though, they will stay there either because they can't leave or out of spite. Like if the college freshman comes home for Thanksgiving and, you know, is just going off about the Communist Manifesto, just every other sentence is about Karl Marx, kind of like someone does when they first start dating someone or they have a crush on someone, how they have a way of mentioning that person in, like, every sentence. Oh, well, uh, well Judy thinks... Oh, you know, I heard this thing from Judy. You know, people do the same thing with ideas and people who are responsible for ideas. We're like a college freshman who gets into Marx. We'll find a way to work Karl Marx into fucking everything. And if they're dating Judy and she's into Karl Marx, ugh, stay away from that kid for a little while. <laughs> um, but it's a problem, though, if then Uncle Dan is like, just holds them to that. And that kid's a commie forever. You know, the nephew, I don't know what the nephew's name is, just nephew. It turns out his name is Nephew, with a capital N. You know, if Uncle Dan just puts the nephew in a box, or if, or if the nephew puts Uncle Dan in a box, be like, Uncle Dan's a, he's a, a Republican asshole, and he's going to be that forever. And maybe he will, if he's, he's an, if he's Uncle Dan, he probably will. But, uh, you know, 
we shouldn't hold some college freshman to like some idea they were exposed to and temporarily enthusiastic for. And that goes for ideas that we see as much, you know, much more insidious too. And I think, you know, there's something insidious about communism, in my opinion, the way it's played out throughout history. It's one of those things where, no, I can't disagree with the basic ideas of it, but when you see something play out in uh, such an inherently corrupt and I don't even need to go into that, but it's just when you, when you see something play out in the same way over and over again, you're just like, well, maybe we should change the name of this at the very least. Maybe we shouldn't use the same name for this thing that manages to, you know, result in brutal authoritarianism whenever it plays out, or in most cases. And I think it's the same for censorship. I mean, that's the funny thing about censorship is I do understand where it comes from. I understand the need to have boundaries and the need to limit to, you know, not only what you're exposed to, but, you know, not wanting certain influences to creep in into your community, into your environment. I understand. It's not that I'm sitting here like, I don't understand why anyone would limit anybody. Why don't we just listen to everybody say everything? I, I don't want to live in that world, you know? Uh, I don't want to live in a world where I'm forced to listen to everything all the time. I mean, it already kind of feels like that. And I think that's contributed to a lot of the censorship. I think it's this overexposure to everyone's ideas all the time through the internet, through all this stuff. And I'll say again, I don't social media shame. I don't phone shame. But I do think having this proliferation of ideas and expression has led us to be like, God, we got to stop this somehow. We got to limit it. But we don't really take personal responsibility for what we're hearing. And instead, we're like, someone else has got to do this for me. I don't want to hear about how Uncle Dan thinks that we need a wall around the border. Uh, so I, I think that Facebook should ban him. Ban him. You know, instead, we want these other people to do it for us. It's like we want other people to impose this discipline rather than taking responsibility and developing our own self-discipline. Uh, and in having that self-discipline, you're more likely to be able to listen to ideas that might not be agreeable or you might agree with them for a time and you can move on because you do have some kind of filter. Uh, so there's, there's a level of self-responsibility in all of this, but that doesn't mean that I don't understand the impulse behind censorship. I mean, you know, I probably enact very minor forms of censorship in my own life all the time, but I try not to impose it on anybody else. Uh, but the idea still stands that if you put people in a box, they will stay there, uh, either because they can't leave or out of spite. And it's strange to me how some of the most vocal proponents for this new wave of censorship, uh, especially coming from the left, you know, and it comes under all these names. You know, you don't, you don't hear these people typically saying, like, I'm pro-censorship. I'm pro-censorship. You know, you don't typically hear that. But in Western countries, you know, there's these different manifestations of the same idea, and they all basically boil down to some form of censorship, deplatforming. It's all rooted in the same impulse, and it, it all becomes corrupted in, in similar ways when we try to impose it on people. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting that some of the vocal proponents of censorship as a catch-all word in Western countries are also the most vocally against prisons. And censorship to me is a psychic prison, and like censorship, physical prisons are rooted in a belief that people are stupid. 
Sure, people acknowledge the shrewdness and nefarious intelligence of criminals, but in terms of social intelligence, someone with a criminal record is often seen as stupid, stupid for doing whatever he did, stupid for not being able to apply himself on a more acceptable road. A criminal is seen as lacking something. Uh, some sort of awareness or cognitive ability, and putting them in a cage with other people who lack the same components is expected to change them or at least keep them away from people who follow laws. And I do understand that. I understand why we have to set up boundaries around and between some people in the same way that I, I understand setting up boundaries you know, between yourself and certain people and ideas. I understand the idea of setting boundaries around people who... Uh, have and will cause harm to other people. Uh, I understand the foundations of prison, why, why the idea of prisons exist, and even if I don't support the way they're structured, I understand where it all comes from. But I also see the nightmarish mess that plays out in the form of prison systems in many countries, including my own. I don't know if every idea about prison reform would be effective, but I know which ones have a chance. Those that don't view criminals and would-be prisoners as fundamentally lacking or fundamentally stupid. And the same is very true for censorship. I understand the foundations of censorship because I understand the desire to limit my own exposure to people and ideas, as I've said. But censorship, like prison systems, is highly prone to corruption and general malignance, assuming it wasn't corrupt and malignant from the start. Uh, and like a corrupt prison system, censorship rarely reforms, redeems, or adds value to those being censored, those who broke the laws of approved speech. Yet again, I understand and even relate to the core of censorship, that base idea of setting up a boundary. What is the ideal boundary, then? Uh, to spare ourselves from people and ideas that we don't want to contend with? You know, I believe we already have that with free speech laws, imperfect as they are. Free speech laws give the speaker and the listener the benefit of the doubt that they are intelligent and aware enough to voluntarily say and hear ideas without being considered immediately corruptible, dangerous, threatening, or at the base of, of it all, stupid. And if people do become those things, we also shouldn't treat that like a permanent state. We should see it as a process. But yeah, referring to people as stupid is common and treated very casually in this culture. It's seen as a form of venting and usually isn't thought of as hateful. It's some kind of mechanism or reaction people take when someone doesn't think or do what they want. It's the same sort of person who's like, fuck my life, fuck my life. People are so stupid. It's like something really minor and petty inconveniences them, and they're like, I hate people. I hate people. You hear that all the time, every day. And it usually, they don't mean it. They don't mean that they actually hate people. But it's this desire to, you know, you're giving up responsibility for yourself, and you're saying, because people are stupid, something bad happened to me. And maybe sometimes that's true. I don't know. You slipped on a banana peel. Someone stoop was stupid and didn't throw it out. I don't know. Uh, but still, there's this. It's a sort of victim mentality. People are stupid, and uh, I'm the smart one. It's like the hot topic shirt I talked about in the the Patriots episode, the New England Patriots episode I did. I love that I can say that the New England Patriots episode I did. Uh, 
but I was talking about that, how, you know, like it's like the I see dumb people shirt. It's like playing off the sixth sense. There was that black shirt with the white writing that Hot Topic used to sell. Maybe they still sell it. I'd be impressed if they still sell it this in 2019. Everything old is new again, so they probably do sell it. Uh, but it says, I see dumb people. And, uh, yeah, you look really dumb wearing it, <laughs> for one. Uh, but it reminds me of that whenever I hear people say it. Otherwise intelligent people. You know, because I do see people as fundamentally aware and intelligent. Uh, I've had to learn to do that more, but I, I have, in effect, done that. And it doesn't mean I'm not disappointed. It doesn't mean that I don't scratch my head a lot of the time. It doesn't mean that I don't slip on banana peels and wonder, like, who the hell put that there? And then wonder why I was the one who fucking stepped on it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, how come I didn't notice? It's it's one thing that someone put the banana peel there, but, you know, I'm the one who stepped on it. How come I didn't see it? Uh, you know, you got to ask yourself those kinds of questions. Um, but, uh, you know, th that idea, it's this very casually accepted idea to say, you know, people are stupid. Why are people so stupid? They don't agree with me. They don't do what I expect them to do. They sometimes inconvenience me. They sometimes inconvenience me. You know, it's very common and acceptable. Uh, and it doesn't seem that hateful when you hear it put that way, when you hear someone just casually make that kind of comment. But what makes it hateful is that what we value in ourselves as a species is intelligence and not some strict academic definition of intelligence like IQ or some other measurement, but a basic awareness. Um, you know, I've talked on here before about how in the story of Adam and Eve, the tree of knowledge gave them awareness. So there's a long history of equating basic awareness, self-awareness as the essence of knowledge and therefore intelligence. So to say that people are dumb or stupid in the context of censorship is to say that they are so lacking in awareness that we have to police their thoughts. Uh, and, you know, censorship is a way of saying that certain thoughts and the people attached to them have no value. Uh, because we see people as inherently stupid and therefore prone to whatever comes their way, uh, just they're just going to adopt whatever idea they hear. They're susceptible to everything bad. You know, we we're basically saying they're stupid, and because we measure people in terms of their awareness, which is the most basic form of intelligence we have, you know, uh, we are basically saying they have no value. They have no value according to the basic measurement of awareness. So we must control what they see, say, hear, all of that. Uh, and that measurement of awareness, it's naturally arbitrary and completely biased. Because as I said, it, it's usually a reaction to people not doing what you want or what you think is right. And calling someone stupid is to strip away their value. And that's inherently hateful, given that most of what we define as hate on a societal level is the view that someone or their group has no value. That's the basic idea between, you know, this, you know, catch-all term of hate and hatred uh, as it's used today. It basically means that person sees certain groups as having no value. So if we don't think that people have any value, if, if, we if we think that people who lack awareness have lesser or no value, in a way that's a form of hatred, and trying to control them as a result is an act of hatred. And, you know, just that entire devaluation of people, that's what leads to bad shit. 
thinking people have no value. And it's no surprise that the devaluation of Trump supporters, justified or not, has led to this punch a Nazi in a face slogan that paints the word Nazi with a very broad brush and thus gives you, you know, many more opportunities to punch, assuming that you're actually a person of action, which few people are. And I don't support violence, but I'm not a pacifist either. Uh, I can imagine circumstances where violence appears to be necessary. And, you know, you can see those circumstances play out around the world. You know, there are examples in history of nonviolent Buddhist monks training in martial arts to fight off Muslim invaders centuries ago. Everyone has a limit, and in the same way that hatred is a universal human trait to contend with, regardless of your spiritual or philosophical stance, uh, so is the closely related idea of violence, which is the correlated action related to the feeling or emotion of hatred. Violence is how hatred plays out in terms of action. It is the punch that goes along with the devaluation. It is interesting, though, that hate has become such a brand name, and that's not new. Uh, you know, of course, hatred, the idea of hatred and the way it's used m- most often in Western society has become completely alienated and abstracted from its base definition as an emotional disposition or reaction. And I'd say it's a long-form reaction rather than an immediate one like anger. It's probably the gradual result of anger experienced over and over, you know, anger experienced over and over again, and not necessarily justified, but sometimes justified, will lead someone to develop a hateful stance. Uh, It's almost like some kind of residual anger or disgust. But it has become a brand, one that people project onto others and one that people willingly identify with, one that they brand themselves with. And you have people who brand it on others with ever-expansive words like hate speech and hate groups, sometimes branding those on as crudely as a cattle prod would. You know, it gets very literal in some ways, kind of like a not too different from a scarlet letter, R for racist, H for hate, hateful. Uh, you know, and sometimes the people who are doing that branding refuse to acknowledge that hate is a component of the human experience, like other feelings and emotions, and that the finger doing that pointing their own is a hateful one. Uh, but some people can admit that, and they would claim it's a justified hatred, that it's okay to hate hateful people. It's okay to hate hate, which sounds like really... (laughs) Uh, That sounds like a really good tweet. It's okay to hate, 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 hate. Sounds like a, oh man, that's funny. Um, uh, But, you know, once again, we're back to the tree falling in the forest, uh, which turns out it isn't a forest, but a maze. And there's no right way out, no answer, except to get away from the fucking tree and not get crushed. It's okay to hate, hate. It's okay to hate hateful people. I feel like that's just a riddle that you're never going to solve. And it's endless. It's endless hate. It truly is. It's okay to hate hateful people, so therefore you're a hateful person. Uh, Interesting. It's okay to hate hateful people, and it's okay to hate people who hate people at that point. And it's just, it's an endless, it's two mirrors facing each other. Uh, Just get out from under that tree as quickly as you can. It doesn't matter if it makes a sound... Look for the shadow, you know? (laughs) Nobody ever talks about the shadow of the tree falling in the forest. 
Uh, but the only way to understand and potentially control hate under all of its names and disguises is to be self-aware. And again, we're back to awareness. You have to see your feelings for what they are, regardless of the political brand name or buzzword you put on them. And the people encouraging censorship don't feel they're being hateful in most cases. You know, most of them aren't saying it's okay to hate hate. They're just not even looking at themselves at all. And they wouldn't brand censorship as a hateful action either, even though, as I said, censorship is fundamentally misanthropic and therefore hateful. They just don't see it that way. Uh, But what's even more confusing than the finger pointers, the people who are branding other people as haters, it's okay to hate haters, is that all of the people who do identify with hatred as a brand, uh, you know, are a part of this equation as well. It's not just that people are calling you know, anyone who disagrees with them hateful. It's that there are people out there, and they've been around for decades, uh, who, who do identify with hatred as a brand. It's their own brand, and they wear the logos. You know, they wear the, uh, the swastika swoosh. You know, all of those angry people who choose to put themselves in that box, they are real. And I understand the exploration of hatred in the arts or as some kind of philosophical exercise if for no other reason than to understand yourself and therefore your own species, your own capacities. And maybe there's even something there that you can use to help people deep below the surface of whatever it is that you're looking at. You know, as I like to talk about, if an idea can come to you from an unlikely or even a despised source, someone who you hate, that idea must be a pretty good fucking idea. That must be a pretty powerful idea if it can travel over that channel, if it can, you know, if that idea can come to you through a pretty treacherous fucking sea, it must be a pretty good idea. And that doesn't mean you have to like the source. It doesn't mean you have to like the person, the ideology, wherever it is you're encountering this idea. But when an idea is a good, when you can recognize something as a good idea or something that you can use, it might not even be a good idea, but it's something that makes you more well-rounded. If that can come to you through an otherwise terrible source, you still have to use it, you know, or you still should. You shouldn't completely deny yourself the opportunity because you never know what good you can use that idea for. Uh, Even if it triggers another idea, it might not even be the original idea you heard itself. It might just spark an epiphany and it could actually ground you even more in the complete opposite of whatever it is you're hearing, of the complete opposite of whoever it is that's saying it. So it's not even about just like agreeing with someone you don't like. You might not agree, but it still might spark something. And it's that opportunity that you're missing out on when we put people in boxes, when we censor. I think a good example is if the person in your class who annoys you the most at most asks a good question or even gives a good answer to the teacher's question, do you deny the value of what they've said simply because you don't like them, don't like what they stand for? It's very easy to do that. I mean, I remember being in college and there would be that guy in your class who raises his hand every fucking second and it's always the same guy and he's so fucking annoying and you know you'll never like him. But every once in a while he might say something and it wasn't me. This wasn't me who was doing this. Uh, It wasn't me. Uh, but you know, that guy very well might say something insightful. I mean, I I still think about like something, this one guy who annoyed the piss out of me. I still remember like something he said about his brother, some anecdote. And you always got to love those personal anecdotes in a college classroom. Uh, 
Uh, but I remember something he said about his brother, like seeing his brother kind of like follow the same patterns that he had. And it was like, wow, that's fucking insightful. Uh, I'm the brother. No, I don't have any brothers. No, blo- no, <laughs> no brothers by blood. Uh, but people are worried that by acknowledging repellent people and ideas, you know, well, people are worried that by acknowledging, uh, I don't know, pe- people are just worried. There's this worry behind all of this. It's all coming from a deep place of fear. And they think that in acknowledging repellent people and, I- and ideas, it will draw them into the whole sick picture. You know, it's like, oh, if you listen to that person, if you give that person the time of day, if we give that person a public platform, it's just going to draw people into the whole sick picture. And who cares if someone's getting like an epiphany or an idea? Uh, we don't want them to get drawn into that whole sick picture. We don't want the, we don't want our 10-year-old to see that horror movie. Uh, but they're going to see it in three years anyway. They're going to see it at a friend's house. We don't want them to see it. Uh, but does that happen? Do people get drawn into the whole sick picture? Sure. Uh, but if you don't put a lid on that box, that person might crawl out of the box. They might crawl out of the sick picture. (laughs) I don't know why I keep saying that. It just sounds good. Uh, but that person might crawl out of the box with a more well-rounded perspective that does far greater good, objective good than branding people and putting lids on boxes. You know, former drug addicts have some of the best insight into addiction. That former skinhead who's making his rounds on the motivational speaking circuit seems to be pretty popular for a reason. Uh, the most powerful insight into self-help comes from people who have been in the abyss and crawled out. When you put a lid on the box, you create an even blacker abyss, and you live under the illusion that you're actually closing it. You can't put a lid on the abyss, and you certainly can't cover it with dirt. The abyss doesn't close, and you can't cover it up. Uh, nobody's ever been saved from the abyss, whether they exist within it or outside of it, you know, whether they believe in the phony illusion of a lid over that abyss, you know, the second you stand proudly on that lid, you realize the abyss has turned into a grate with wide open slats big enough for you. And by then it's too late. Something, something, when you stare into the abyss, it stares back into you as the man with the mustache said, As the famous man who wrote books and has the pictures with the mustache once said, staring into the abyss stares back at you. You know, I mean, it's true. There's a lot of truth to that. And, uh, you know, if you put people in abysses and try to put a lid on it, you're going to do a lot of staring. You're going to do a lot of looking down into that abyss. Uh, But I believe any kind of warrior mentality in any walk of life requires access to and control access the ability to access and control what might be called hatred but to choose that as a social or group identity is an exercise in nihilism masquerading as conviction and belief and you can see that in the way that neo-nazi skinhead social clubs continually beat each other up and pride themselves on their capacity to drown their bullshit in booze just drowning your bullshit in booze 
you know, and it's not just the self-righteous leftists using their finger to paint broad strokes against anyone who disagrees with them, which is a real, very real phenomenon happening now. But it's also these, you know, false white warriors and pseudo traditionalists painting themselves into a pointless existence themselves. They're doing so much to themselves. And it's no good. None of it is any good from either side. I don't see any good. And both sides feed right into each other. And of course, there's a gradient, but, you know, I'm using sides as an example here. Teams. And they do feed right into each other, and they're playing the exact same game. It's like two teams who think they're playing in the Super Bowl, screaming at the other team for making them play. Meanwhile, neither team realizes they're not in the Super Bowl. They're in the fucking preseason of of Little League. And Pop Warner is pissed. Dad's pissed. Pop Warner is pissed. You know, this is supposed to be just a fun uh, youth game here. These are just supposed to be boys playing ball. Look what you guys are doing. But you're in the fucking preseason of Little League. Don't piss off Pop Warner. Nobody even knows what he looks like. You know, I played youth football, and you'd hear Pop Warner, and I just kind of took it for granted, where I was like, who the hell is Pop Warner? Obviously, he's some guy who probably coached or, you know, maybe he was very civically involved and he helped establish, he probably established the league, helped establish some sort of youth sports. He was a youth sports enthusiast. Turns out he was just a fan. He was just some guy who like went to every youth football game. He bet on youth football games, but he's pissed off at you for uh, getting mad at the other team for playing in the same game you are. But to get back to that idea of putting a lid on the box, you know, whether you put someone in that box or they crawled in themselves or a little of both, when you try to put a lid on that box, it communicates that someone not only has no value right now, but will continue to have no value, no path to redemption, no hope for growth, no possibility of becoming a person who you can harmonize with when all is said and done. And not only does censorship, deplatforming, all of the manifestations of this same misanthropic action, not not only do they somehow, you know, not only do they stop someone in their tracks and prevent someone from becoming someone else, they are often used today to punish an individual for who they used to be, what they said in the past, what they used to read or think about, even who they used to hang out with. So censorship is not only an attack on the possibility of what someone might become, it's an attack on who they are today, even if they're just like you. And, you know, you might attack someone today who's just like you because of who you thought they were at one point. And again, it's this proliferation of information, this documentation of people. And that's the strange thing about these things we use. Again, no social media shaming. I'm pro-social media. Uh, But... The fact that, like, you can look at something from the distant past and be like, I'm looking at something that was produced by the same person I know today. And it's like, people can't just delete everything. You know, we shouldn't live in a world where you have to delete every trace of who you were. You know, it's not how, just not how it works. That's not how individuation, that's not how your own personal transformation has to work by just constantly, like, monitoring, basically censoring your past self. And, you know, obviously certain things are, you know, more insidious than others. But still, we, we are existing in this world where we're not only attacking the possibility of what someone might become because of who they are today, but we're also attacking who they are today because who they were then. And that just shows you how time is just a, a circle, man. 
Time is just an excuse to attack people. That's kind of how this seems. Time. What, what's the purpose of time? Ask Pop Warner. Ask Pop Warner what the purpose of time is. It's just to attack people. <laughs> it's a way to figure out the best... <laughs> It's a way to figure out the best time and place to attack someone. Uh, But, you know, that is the aspect of it is you're attacking the possibility of what someone might become when you try to put them in a box or even if they've crawled in themselves, when you try to put a lid on that box and sit on it. It's a complete negation of hope and the human spirit for that matter. It's a complete negation of hope and the human spirit. And that is why it is misanthropic. That is why it is hateful. Anything that prevents someone from becoming what they could be is misanthropy in its purest form. It is hate. And to get back to the original question at the very beginning of this whole episode, you know, if you take away not just the audience, but the possibility of an audience from a speaker, do they make a sound? If you take away the possibility of an audience from a speaker, do they make a sound? And unlike the tree question, this can be answered. They do make a sound, but only they hear it. And it echoes and repeats in their head over and over again with no opportunity for release. When someone has been censored, they don't stop thinking and they don't stop speaking, but they certainly do stop listening. If the ideas they want to hear aren't acceptable, then nobody else's are either. And their ideas become even more malignant, even more poisonous. And it's even worse if they're not entirely alone and they do find some hole to crawl into with others just like them. That is the abyss. And a lot of good conversations come out of the abyss, but the conversations going in aren't what you'd call good, though they're very interesting if you want to learn something. And that's what you miss out on if you try to put a lid on it. You miss out on that opportunity to learn. And sometimes the best learning, the best learning comes from the people that you least want to hear from, the people that you least want to gain insight from. And no, it's not just the pundits accused of hate speech who are hanging out in the abyss. It's anyone who unfriends anyone who thinks differently from them. It's anyone who walls themselves off in a space, digital or physical, with people who won't question them, and more importantly, won't introduce any new ideas into that feedback loop. There are layers, gradients, and levels in the abyss, and some people are in deeper than others, but they're all down there, and it's a slippery fucking world down there. So don't get too comfortable on whatever little ledge you think you're hanging on to. You won't even know who else is down there in that little hole, in that box, until it's too late. Because by marginalizing and censoring someone, you lose your awareness of who they are, what they're thinking, and ultimately doing. And you lose your awareness of who you are, what you're thinking, and what you are ultimately doing. And if you're not aware of that, who is the dumb one? Who is the stupid one? Who is truly dumb? Who is truly stupid? Not you. So don't censor yourself and don't support the censorship of anyone else. But don't take my word for it. Listen to someone else, too. This land is mine God gave this land to me 
This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children